Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. It's always great to visit with my friend Rabbi Dove Lipman. And Rabbi, it is Father's Day weekend here in the United States, and you and I are both fathers seeking to be men of God who teach our children to know and love God. So when we talk about the Torah portion in a moment, we'll get into the study of God's Word. But what does it mean in your mind as a rabbi and as a father to be a man of God who is a good representative of the Heavenly Father to our earthly children? So it's really a, you know, there's a lot of analysis within uh, the Jewish tradition about the whole concept of parenthood, fatherhood. Certainly the Bible is, is replete with stories about good parents, bad parents, the whole relationship, father, son. And there, there's one tradition which I think about all the time, which talks about that there are partners in creation, that, that part. Part of the reason, or the reason, I should say, why God created a world where there is fatherhood and there is parenthood is that we can be partners with him. He's an initial creator, but we play a role in creation, and that enables us to be godlike. The reason why we're here is to connect with God, to be godlike, so the entire establishment of fatherhood is to be godlike. And we have to think about it in that way. And we have to think about it both in terms of what it does for us, that it turns us into godlike beings, and it turns us, and, and for what it does for our children, that we have that, that role to play. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, I've had conversations with people who have said to me, uh, why would I want to be a parent? Why would I want that responsibility? Why would I want that hindrance of me being able to do what I want to do? And I think that's exactly the point. We sacrifice so much. We give so much of ourselves. We transmit traditions. We transmit life lessons. Uh, we give of our own time. And that is being God. That's the giving uh, that God wants. We're not doing it for ourselves in the sense of this world. We're doing it for ourselves because it enables us to be godlike. And I think that is why it's so important to put time into it. That is why it's so important to take it seriously. And it's not just something that we do. I know we've spent time together because so I know that we're both very involved fathers. And we also know, though, that with all the difficulty and with all the challenges and there are highs and there are lows, it's the greatest act of giving that there could be. And I know that you feel the same way. It is a blessing from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And you're right when people say parenting costs me time, it costs me money, I could spend my time doing something else, my own hobbies. But there is a definite blessing from the Lord and a reward for those 
who try to replicate the Heavenly Father's love toward us as we try to give that to our children. And when you talk about God-like, I know you well enough, you're not saying that we're perfect or we're all holy like God is. What you're saying is we want to be the guide, the teacher, the lover, the forgiver, the role model for our kids, taking what the scriptures and what the Spirit of God teaches us and try to pass that along to the next generation. Exactly. And, and there's no doubt that for us and, and for, for both of our faiths, the, the idea of being the transmitter of something meaningful and something divine and, and something which gives them meaning in their lives, it, there's, there's no greater uh, feeling. Uh, you know, parenting is not just about buying them things and giving them things and not just about making sure that they're set in terms of being able to support their families and, 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 live and, and, and sustain themselves. There's, once you have the spiritual dimension there, it, it really does uh, transform it. Uh, into something so much more uh, meaningful. We actually, in our faith, we, in, in Israel, actually, there's no Father's Day. I think it's a great opportunity to talk about uh, the meaning of fatherhood, but there is an idea in terms of the children to the parents that every day has to be Father's Day, every day has to be Mother's Day. We have a primary commandment uh, in number five of the Ten Commandments to honor our, our parents, and uh, that relationship is supposed to be first and foremost on that radar screen. I hear about families where there's almost no communication, where you know, parents go to work, they come home, the television goes on, the kids are on their screens, the parents are on their screens, and there's no interaction between uh, one another. I used to go to my son's Little League games and in shock to see you know, not a lot of other parents there uh, to take interest in what their kids are doing. And it, it, you know, parenting cannot be, and it's a biblical idea, it cannot be that you've just created a child. Uh, there's so much more that has to be done afterwards, and the parents uh, have that blessing to be God-like, exactly like you said, Pastor, not perfect, but God-like in the sense that we get to be involved in the development and the process of this little baby uh, eventually becoming a grown adult. And I think one more point that we should bring up is part of being a godly father is being a godly husband and being a role model for what a biblical marriage looks like. Your wife, Dina, is a, a woman of God, and you two have raised beautiful children together. Breda and I have tried to do the same. And so talk about the, the corollary aspect that a good father is also a good husband. Well, there's no doubt that when, when the tradition says that there are three partners— and it says that it's the father and the mother together with God. And that father-mother unit is so, so critical uh, to the development. And uh, there's no doubt that if children grow up in a spiritual home, uh, in a home where there is harmony, in a home where there is consistency, a home where there is love, uh, it makes all the difference in the world in terms of their uh, peace of mind, their calm, and their ability to really accept those traditions from their parents. And therefore, it's a critical, uh, critical piece. I actually have a tradition in the Hebrew words for man and woman. The Hebrew word for a man is ish, which is spelled aleph, yud, shin. Those are the three letters. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, which is aleph, shin, hey. In the man's name is the yud. The yud is one name of God. Is one letter in God's name, I'm sorry, and the hey at the end of Isha is the letter from God's name. So you have the Yud, the hey, that's the Yah, 
from God's name. If you take the Yud and the He out, if you take God out of that marriage, both for the man and the woman, you're left with the exact same word. And that word is Esh, which means fire. It's not spiritual, then it's it's not going to it's it's not it's almost meaningless. It's just a physical relationship, right? and it's just people that have to be living together. You put the God into it, then you have Ish and Isha, then you have the proper relationship the way it's supposed to be, and that's what we strive for on a daily basis. A beautiful Bible teaching there, and we'll finish this part of the conversation with asking you to recite the blessing that you pray over your children on Shabbat. Say it in Hebrew, and then say it in English. Absolutely. And just to paint the scene for everyone who's listening, when we come home from the synagogue on Friday night, we come in and we sit around the table, we begin the meal by giving blessing to children, and the blessing comes first and foremost from uh, something we've talked about in the Bible, the blessing that was given to, that for Aaron and the priests to give to the people. The Hebrew is as follows. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. And it's a blessing of peace, uh, that God should bless us with peace, that God should shine his light uh, upon us, and he should bring us uh, peace. But then we end off with a line for the boys. We say, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, who were Jacob's grandsons, Joseph's sons, who were elevated to the level of Jacob's own sons. They were considered like tribes. And we bless our children that they should go beyond their potential. They were just grandsons, but they became Jacob's sons. Go beyond your potential. There's no barrier. And we bless our daughters. May our daughters be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Women who grew up in pagan environments, and bucked all the odds and ended up being married to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Again, breaking those barriers spiritually, nothing can stop them. And those are the blessings that we give every Friday night to our children. A beautiful description of what biblical fatherhood looks like. And so we do say Happy Father's Day to all those in America who are celebrating that. And right now on the podcast, we want to turn our attention to this week's Torah portion called Korah or Korach. It's a the second main word in this Torah portion that comes from Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18. And the name Korah is the name of a man who was Moses' cousin. And he begins to institute a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Remember to our listeners, we've been studying this Torah portion last week. It was about the 12 spies who went into the promised land and came back. Ten of them gave a negative or a fearful report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, gave a positive or faithful report. The people chose to buy into the fear and the lack of faith. And so after 40 days of disobeying the Lord, God said that they would now spend 40 years wandering the desert And so after that, while they're still in the wilderness, there became a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and it wasn't led by someone who was distant from Moses. It was led by his own cousin, Korah, in chapter 16 of Numbers, and it says, They rose up before Moses, this is verse 2, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown, and they assembled against Moses and Aaron and said, You have gone far enough. 
All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. Why do you exalt yourselves among, uh, above the assembly of the Lord? So they try to make a statement saying, we're all equal before God. Why are you the leaders? And so what we're seeing here is biblical and spiritual rebellion. It is. And here's the amazing thing. According to our tradition, it wasn't as if this fellow Korach was this horrible, wicked, scheming man. He was one of the leaders. He was a Levite. And he had jealousy, which was in him. He actually thought that his rebellion with the 250 men was the right thing for the people of Israel. He felt that it was wrong that Moses and Aaron are taking the leadership, especially Aaron. And he thinks that he even talks about the fact that all the people uh, are, are holy. Uh, we all can be leaders. Why have you taken this leadership? And he doesn't even realize that he's doing one thing which is really wrong, and that is he's going against the word of God. He can have all the justifications possible. I think it's the right thing. But as we have talked about over and over again, Pastor, it all comes down to is this what God said to do or not? You can use all the rational thinking in the world uh, and think that you're right, but does it go back to what God said, yes or no? And this is where the real failure came in. So Moses replies at chapter 16, verse 4, he fell on his face, meaning he was sad, he was in grief, he was sorrowful, and he was going to pray. And he said, let the Lord decide. Verse 5, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who and we will bring him near to himself even the one he will choose he will bring near to himself and so i think the lesson here is if there's a dispute between people over what the will of god is let's don't argue and fight let's ask god what his plan is and that's pretty amazing moses did not really engage them you would think moses would engage them in a in a, in a verbal battle uh, you'd see some whole argument blow up he just says let's just take it right to the lord let's just do it that way that's where that's where my authority comes from i didn't even want this job to begin with and let's just give it over to the lord and you're exactly right uh you, know, you can almost imagine uh, a scene how a civil war could have broken out. You know, the people who support Moses come out with their arms, people who support Korach with their arms. Uh, Moses just said, enough, I'm not going to deal with this. We're going to give it over to God and he'll take care of this. And so they go before the Lord and, and Moses has a plan and he says that, the, that God will decide. So he calls in verse 12 for other people, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we're not going to come up. Is it not enough you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness? Would you also lord over us? And so not only are they opposing the leadership of Moses in a spiritual rebellion, but they're what we would call recreating history. Moses led them out of brutal slavery in Egypt, and they're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey, which is supposed to be the description of the promised land, the land of Israel. They're pretending like the past was great when it really wasn't. And that's also, you just see how they're able to fool themselves and, and, and how life's experiences and frustrations can lead you to believe that black is white and white is black. And there's a complete distortion of, of truth that's going on over here. That should have been the moment where they were shook into reality. And they would have said to themselves, wait a minute, what are we even saying over here? But they didn't. Their jealousy was strong, their desire to be the leaders was strong, and it overcame all rational thinking. So Moses says God's going to decide, and he makes a plan about how to 
let God demonstrate his choice. In verse 17 of number 16, each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it. Each of you will bring his censer before the Lord. 250 fire pans, you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. And so they come to the doorway of the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle. And it says, the glory of the Lord, verse 19, appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord, this is now verse 20, said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. God said, I'm going to judge them for the rebellion. And what did Moses and Aaron do in reply? They could have cheered. And instead, they fell on their faces and they asked God for forgiveness for the people. So Moses and Aaron, who are not sinless, let's not pretend that, but they are holy men. They continue to seek repentance and forgiveness for the sins of other people. We've talked about this uh, over and over again, how this is the response of Moses in every single scenario. Every time he could have just given up and said, this is enough. I don't need this. God is promising me a great future without the people of Israel. Let me just go with it. Uh, That is not his response. And unbelievable dedication to the people, an unbelievable desire not to see them decimated, but to see them uh, atone uh, and and repent and and become better. Uh, What a perspective of a leader who says, I'm the leader, I'm the shepherd, it's my job to take care of them, and I will never, ever abandon them. Such a powerful lesson uh, for all of us today as leaders. Then you get into a crazy story where Moses basically asks God to show the people who's righteous, who is following the will of God, and he said basically... Verse 30 of number 16, if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, which is the ground, but it represents hell, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. And then in verse 31, it says the ground split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to them with their possessions. And they went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Now, this is one of those wild stories that we wondered, could it really happen? And of course, the creator of the universe can do with his own earth whatever he chooses to do. But what a dramatic way to show judgment. The ground opened up and the people fell in a big hole. Korach and his colleagues made it seem like their issue was with Aaron. Their issue was with Moses and as if it wasn't with God. But we know that God's the one who commanded that Moses and Aaron have the leadership. So in essence, they were challenging God and God's existence and God's domain on the world. And therefore, he makes this brand new creation so that everyone else around who may have been somehow sucked into their beliefs we'll see very clearly exactly what you just said, Pastor, that God controls all, God is the creator, and that reinforces Moses, Aaron, and whatever else uh, God decides. So this method of death uh, was, is very graphic and very shocking, but also very, very deliberate for the people to see uh, God's uh, domain and God's control, and ultimately that he's the creator, and he's the one who determines what happens here. And it wasn't just the 250 men led by Korach that, that died, their family members, their possessions, which is much less important than people, but it was 
a multitude of people who suffered because of their disobedience. And this is another biblical lesson we've learned. My sin affects my walk with God, but it can also have consequences for my family members. Absolutely. Those around us, we have a teaching in Ethics of Our Fathers that uh, talks about the the danger of, of neighbors. And if you have the wrong neighbors, that can have an impact on you without you even realizing it. Certainly family. And no one can be blocked from that when you're around people who are this way, especially these people who are filled with this jealousy and this challenging of God. And therefore, it all has to be uh, removed if we're going to start fresh. This was a, 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 the reason why this Korach rebellion is so significant is because of his prominence. He wasn't some simpleton who came along. He was a Levite. He was a person who was a cousin, like you mentioned in the beginning, of Moses and Aaron, a person that everyone could have said, seen as an equal leader. And, and uh, this had to be changed. This had to be transformed. God had to do something drastic, and that included that their families could not be uh, part of the people of Israel any longer as well. The next part of the story in Numbers 16 is that the Lord told Moses to say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, that he should take up the censers, the, the fire pans that were used to put the incense into the altar, that Moses said to gather all of those up and then to break them, to hammer them into sheets. So it's going to cover the altar and so it becomes a reminder for them going forward that these bronze censers that were used to give a false offering before the Lord would then become a bronze covering of the altar, and it would be a reminder to the people not to rebel in the future. And this is a way that God uses our past to show us lessons for the future. Really remarkable. You would think on the one hand, such a terrible story that we'd want to cover it up, get it out of the way, we don't want to talk about it any longer, uh, sort of the past is the past. But that's not the way the Lord works, and that's not the way we should work. We should always have the past right in front of us, and if there are mistakes that were made, we have to learn from them and confront them, and the Bible is filled uh, with those kinds of stories. But right over here, we take that medal and we put it right onto the altar. Every time people go for repentance, they're going to be reminded of this rebellion, reminded of the consequences, and that will hopefully inspire the people uh, to be better. But it's a pa powerful point that I think people of faith always keep to, which is we don't ignore the past and try to uh, put it behind us. We want to be able to learn from it and keep it there to inspire us. And you would think it would cause the rest of the people of Israel to be more holy and more subservient to the Lord, but it doesn't. They also have another rebellion. Verse 41 says, they grumbled the next day against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. And so they didn't see it as a judgment of God on the rebellion. They saw it as somehow the fault of Moses and Aaron. And so we have this perpetual rebellion, this perpetual unfaithfulness that even today we struggle with. Very much so. And uh, you know, this is a point that we, we almost come across every single week, which is human nature and the need to always stay focused. And if we don't, what we are uh, you know, almost automatically lapse into. And that's why being spiritual is important. Going to synagogue and church is important. Studying is important. Anything that we can do to keep us focused, because if we don't, we see the natural result. Now we move into Numbers chapter 17, as we talk about this week's Torah portion. And they were supposed to take a rod, a, a stick, 
from each of the leaders of the households, 12 rods from the 12 tribes, and this would be God's way to show them who he picks as the righteous leader. Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be Aaron, who would be the high priest and the father of all the priests? And so Moses takes a stick, a wooden pole, if you will, from every one of the tribes, and he writes the name of the leader on them and then takes the rods into the tabernacle and leaves them there. So God's going to somehow pick who the righteous one is. And the way he chose to do it was a strange one. Moses goes in the next day to the tabernacle and the staff or the rod or the stick of Aaron had sprouted buds like flowers on it and also crazy produced almonds. And this was the evidence that the leaders saw that they had to follow the chosen priest, which would be Aaron. Lots of commentaries trying to analyze why was this the symbolism? What is the meaning behind all of this? It was clearly to show something to the people. Uh, certainly the flowers, uh, you could see a sense of flourishing and growth and uh, beauty, and that that was what the priests were supposed to be. The priests were not supposed to be a source of friction and tension and dispute. Their job was to bring peace. And we ultimately are taught that Aaron was a person who was a man of peace and, and who people loved. And they were supposed to get that message as they see this flourishing of the, of the branches and the almonds. One of the beauties of, of studying Bible is that there doesn't have to be a right answer to a question like this. Everyone who's listening has the freedom on their own to think of you know, why, why did this happen? Why is it almonds? Why is it flowers? What's the message? And you can become your own biblical commentator. As we try to figure out how God is going to demonstrate his sovereignty and his grace at the same time over the people, we look back at the Ark of the Covenant, which was a representation of God's physical presence on the earth. And it was contained within the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim in the first temple, Solomon's temple. It was not present in the second temple, Herod's temple, but the place was still there and the Holy of Holies was still there. But if we learn about the Ark of the Covenant and we go to a New Testament verse from the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says in verse 3, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense. And the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. So we understand from the New Testament book of Hebrews that inside the Ark of the Covenant were three objects, a bowl of manna representing God's faithfulness to give people the food every day in the wilderness the tables or the tablets of the Ten Commandments showing God's law, the Torah, but also was this stick, this rod that we read about in the book of Numbers was inside the ark to show that God chooses people to be priests and also he has the power to demonstrate his will in a very visible way. Once again, you know, not putting things behind us. We're not going to ignore the fact that this rebellion took place. It's going to be a reminder at all times. It's right there in the holiest of places uh, to be that reminder. It's, it's good to have physical images sometimes to remind us of, of things that have happened in the past and to inspire us. And this is just a classic example of that. And also to remind us of God's control and God's domain. 
That's why it says in Numbers 17, verse 10, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they should not die. And verse 11, Moses did as the Lord commanded him. So the fact that it was present in the ark was a direct command by God, and Moses continued that. So as we continue this week's Torah portion called Korach, and we get to Numbers chapter 18, the last chapter in this Torah portion, it's now the Lord speaking to Aaron, and it says, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. So before we get into what's next, Talk about the role of the priest. Why are they having to bear the guilt of the people of Israel? They are the ones who, when the people would come and bring uh, sacrifices, they were the ones who had to offer the sacrifices. Um, they're the ones who had to make sure it was done the right way, with the right intentions. They were also supposed to be the teachers, those who inspire. So if there was something wrong with the nation, they were actually to blame. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. This is also a beautiful idea of leaders taking responsibility and not saying, well, what can I do? These are just the people. No, you're supposed to be the ones inspiring. You're supposed to be the ones bringing repentance. You're also held, also held accountable. And this is something which God is trying to uh, uh, establish in the fabric of the priest family, that this will always be the way they look at things and failures amongst the nation. So we get to Numbers chapter 18, verse 2. The Lord says to Aaron, Bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve with you, while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligation of the tent, meaning the tabernacle. But they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, lest both they and you die. And this passage continues, but Rabbi, you've taught us there is a distinction between a priest and a Levite. And I think the phrase is that all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And there's a separation of their duties here. Correct. Uh, very clear separation. The Levites had three primary roles uh, in the uh, temple and tabernacle. Uh, they were singers. They actually sang and played instruments as the services were taking place. They were also doormen, so to speak, security guards. They were in charge of, of the doorway as well. Uh, the priests were the ones who offered the sacrifices that could go even further into the temple than the Levites could. Uh, the priests were descendants of Levi, who was Jacob's third son, uh, but they're specifically descendants of Aaron. And that continues uh, to this day uh, in our synagogues and in our ritual that they have this special elevated role. And the Levites are sort of tier two. And then we have a tier three, which is all the Israelites which is the part that I'm far, uh, uh, part two, uh, where we don't have those special privileges. Uh, I want to mention also the priests were supported by the people. Uh, same with the Levites. There were tithes that were brought, bread, pieces of parts of the sacrifices, and they were supported in this way. They did not own their own land, uh, but they were dependent on the people. And in return, they were supposed to be the spiritual guides. So even today, here we are in the year 2018, the Jewish people and your colleagues and friends are aware of their genealogy so much that they know who are priests and who are Levites even in today's world. 
it's quite remarkable that we have this tradition, and we even know when they're buried, there are certain symbols that are put on their graves to indicate that they're priests or Levites. Uh, we do have that tradition, and even this morning in synagogue, the priests got up and gave us the priestly blessings. They were the ones who were called to the Torah first when we read the Torah this morning. Uh, Levites washed their hands of the priests before they went up to do the blessings. There's a whole ritual, and, it's, and, the, and the tradition continues till today. So that leads to this question. You are a rabbi. You have ordination or, or biblical training, but where does the role of rabbi come in? Because we always hear about priest and Levite. Yeah, there actually was no official title of rabbi. Uh, the, the, the priests were pretty much the spiritual leaders. There wasn't a concept of synagogues and pulpit rabbis and the like. There certainly were teachers. Uh, that's something which developed at a little bit of a later time, uh, that concept, and certainly plays a very important role today uh, when we don't have a temple. But it's a fascinating point that this position of rabbi is not anything that we see uh, in a biblical na- nature. There was a court. There was a Sanhedrin uh, that judged the people when it came to disputes or people who were found guilty of crimes, and they were certainly rabbinic figures, and they did have what we call semicha, which is that they were ordained from Moses on down, uh, but the concept of becoming the rabbi of a community, of a synagogue, of a school, that's something which is a much later development. And we come to the end of this week's Torah portion in the latter part of Numbers chapter 18. And there's all these very specific instructions about what kinds of offerings that the people were to bring and what they were to do with them. And you've got offering of grain and wine and different animals. There's an ox, there's a sheep, there is a goat, there's meat offerings, there's all kinds of offerings. And we've talked about it before, but remind us, God is a God of detail and a God of specific instructions, and every one of these offerings has a special meaning. And we don't always know the meaning. And this is something which is a critical point to accept as well. Where We live in a time where we feel that we need an explanation for everything, and it has to, so to speak, feel good for us. And there's elements of, of this service which we don't necessarily understand and don't necessarily uh, mean something to us uh, in a way that we can comprehend. But this is what God is saying you need to do spiritually. This is what you need to do for your soul. And to connect to God and to have your place in the world to come in heaven. And that's what we're expected to do, even if we don't completely understand exactly how it adds up. At the end of the chapter of Numbers 18, you get to verse 28. You shall present an offering to the Lord from your tithes. And remember that word tithe means tenth, or 10%, which you shall receive from the sons of Israel. And from it you shall give to the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts you shall present every offering due to the Lord from all the best of them, the sacred part of them. So specifically what this means is that the priests were given a tithe from the Levites, and the Levites were given a tithe from the people. So there's a chain of command or a chain of reactions here of who is supported in what way. But to us today, it is a reminder when people give to their synagogue, when they give to a church family, it is because the Lord said, I've given you 100%, you keep 90%. Trust me with the 10% and I can bless you. We say sometimes in the church that God can do more with our 90% for us than we could do with our 100% for us. So you trust God to give out of what he has given to you and trust him to provide. And this is a 
critical, critical point. First of all, the point that you're making of trust and the faith. I know people who they get their paycheck, they have a separate bank account for one-tenth. It goes right in there, and they say, it's not mine. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me, and I just use it for charity. Um, we also, by the way, aside from the tithing that we see over here to the priests, and also there's a process to the Levites, there's also a process for poor people as well to make sure that they're taken care of. And we even have a concept of some of the great rabbis talked about, about tithing your time. That just like you give a tenth of your money to the Lord and to ritual and to spiritual, give it, make sure you're giving a tenth of your time uh, to God and to a spiritual side as well. That's a beautiful concept that people can make a part of their lives. In our church, Rabbi, we say tithe out of your faith, F-A-I-T-H, and we say give 10% of your finances, your abilities, your influence, your time, and the hope of Christ within you. So we talk about tithe out of your faith. Absolutely. And this is something which I think uh, a value, which is no doubt that we share. I think the statistics are overwhelming that people of faith uh, in terms of the charity that they give is way beyond uh, the rest of the population because you view this money as not yours and you view it as a gift that God has given you to be able to help others. And, uh, you know, if you live your life in that way, you'll, you'll find yourself being a giver and you'll find yourself acting in a divine manner. So as we wrap up the conversation today, we have covered Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18, the Torah portion known as Korah, after the man who instigated the rebellion. And we talked at the beginning about fatherhood and Father's Day here in America. Wrap it up for us today, Rabbi. So certainly in terms of Korah, getting back to that whole point of uh, it's not just up to your rational mind to decide. It's up to what uh, the Lord decides. And one of the things that the Lord decided is that we should be parents and, and fathers and, and have that relationship. And I had one thought which crossed my mind, which I wanted to share, and that is uh, I'm not blessed uh, anymore to have my father. Uh, my father passed away. We're getting up to uh, 14 years uh, in December. And uh, those who do have fathers uh, who are listening, take advantage of that, uh, not just on Father's Day, but on a daily basis uh, in terms of being in touch, spending time, appreciate that relationship. And those of us who are blessed to be fathers and have our children certainly don't take that for granted either and make sure that we're as devoted and as dedicated as possible. I know that I try to be a father the way that my father was, uh, best father in the world, a busy man on many levels, community leader, but also so dedicated to all of us. And hopefully everyone can try to follow that example and make each of our children really understand and feel the truth, which is after the most special uh, beings in our lives. We do want to say happy Father's Day to all of the fathers who are listening. Rabbi, Shabbat Shalom and happy Father's Day to you. Shabbat Shalom, happy Father's Day to everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.